we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our interview with Chris Elroy Strickland, part two, I'm going to say. Ron, good to talk to you. <laughs> hey, Ed, good to talk to you. Very happy to have Chris back on, as I know you are. <laughs> I get to be starstruck again. What can I say? Yes, yes. No, I've, in, my, in fact, my standard joke is is that your voice went up about you know uh, an octave, half an octave last time you talked to him. So I think you know we're we're gonna we're gonna have to keep you under control. But I yeah. know, and but Chris, Chris is a great guy and does some has done some pretty amazing things. Let me, and we want to get him right on. I just have a very brief biography. If you want to listen to more about Chris and his background. We in our opening segment, the last time we talked to him, you can go back and listen to that show and we'll post uh, a link to that episode in the show notes. But Chris Elroy Strickland is a partner and executive consultant at Afterburner and a combat proven Air Force leader who successfully bridged the gap between military leadership and civilian desire to learn about leadership. Uh, an acclaimed leadership writer with in almost 100 publications. He is a member of Forbes's Coaches Council where an article was posted today entitled The Seven Lessons on Building Elite Teams for Disruptive Innovation, a topic that Ron and I are extraordinarily passionate about, so we'll definitely talk to him about that. He's got a book coming out in 2009, tentatively entitled Survivor's Obligation. Both Ron and I love the title. And, and he is now one of the few recidivists, as I like to call him, Ron, recidivist guests <laughs> on the show. Chris Elroy Strickland, welcome back to The Soul of Enterprise. Thank you, gentlemen. And like always, I always welcome an opportunity to talk about leadership and talk about improving our skills as we move forward and devote this next hour to talking about the topic. Well, and we are really looking forward to talking to you. Chris and I, we, we keep running into each other at conferences, which is a lot of fun. And, and, and the last time, I think it was about three months ago, I said, all right, we're, we got to get this done, have you back on the show. And we were able to, to, to work this date out, and we're glad you did. But you were on, I guess, about 13 months ago, 12 months ago. And what's, what's going on at Afterburner since, since then? You know, I'm going to tell you since then, uh, we talked on the radio show just as I was retiring after 23 years in the Air Force and bridging over to what I call Life 2.0. It is definitely not retirement because I'm staying more active now than I think I did when I was in service. Uh, my wife and I have moved back to our hometown here in Birmingham, Alabama, and Afterburner is accelerating so much. The company itself been around over 22 years. In the beginning, they started out as a stage, keynote, high-power, motivational company, and now we still are... But the majority of our effort is sitting with C-suites of some of the most amazing companies around the world and helping those leaders accelerate the performance of their companies and what their potential is. Why do you think that shifted, Chris? Why, is, it, is it something that you guys are doing, or is there just more of a need, do you think, for the kind of one-on-one -on -one coaching mentorship and leadership that's, that's out there? 
The answer to that is yes. Okay. Yes, it's something that we wanted to do, but there is such a need out there because you see Afterburner as a team of former fighter pilots, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, we've all done our combat and our training to build those elite teams in the military. And the principles we have found translate across every enterprise, across every company, because leadership is a universal skill. It's a universal skill set that if you can build an elite team in the military, you can build an elite team in companies. And regardless of whether that's a pharmaceutical company, a software company, or a trucking company, Leadership is the most universal skill there is. And, and I, I definitely agree with you. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. This is kind of out of the blue as you were just talking. And I, and I don't know. You might not know anything ab- about this. But um, one, of, one of my favorite quotes is, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less, which you might recognize as uh, that's uh, uh, General Sinchecki, Eric Sinchecki. Um, mentioned that. And of course, he did some amazing work with the United States military while when he was chief of staff of the U.S. Army. And it, I think it was under the first Bush and then into the, the Clinton years. And really was was incredible at, at the transformation that happened at the end of the Cold War and, and, the, and the changes that happened in the United States military. Then he went on and was at Secretary of Veterans Affairs for a while, but he really struggled there. Do you think that the – I mean, obviously his leadership talents didn't change. Or do you think there's just, just something about government bureaucracy that's not military? Yeah. It. So that is a tough question, but it's an easy answer. And although leadership is universal, not everybody can translate their skills from one industry to the next, because ultimately Mm -hmm. we have to boil it down to the aspects that do translate. And as I go into corporations, I was just out in Houston last week with a company, and I can't walk into the room and know that I outrank everybody. My wife (laughs) joked when I retired, uh, I had to get used to civilian life because Whenever I walked into a room in the military, people stood up that I outranked. In the civilian world, nobody stands up. And that may be a a comical example, but there are things that are different in the civilian world than they were in the military. And the beauty of the consultants at Afterburner, the people we hire, is their business training allows them to translate their skills from the military style into corporate America so that it's not pushed back on and we all know uh, how we translate that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it does. I, you know, I think there's obviously other factors involved with with that particular one too. I mean, I, I, I have to think that just, just governmental agencies that are non-military are, are perhaps even more challenging, let's say, to deal with because they're uh, in some cases entrenched bureaucrats and that's not only do they not stand up, but maybe they, they sneer even. <laughs> that's exactly it. And you think about this, like, any sport, any any musician out there, we can all sit down with the same instructors teaching us how to play the violin, but one violin player is going to be better than the others. And it's a combination of that knowledge, the openness to learn more, and the dedication to improving tomorrow, which is one of the things we talked about at Afterburner. And everything we do, we know that the desire of an elite team is to be better tomorrow than we are today. And it's all about us as a team, not me individually. And that's what drives people to success, whether it's the military or the civilian business world. Yeah, very true. Well, uh, changing topics just slightly, and as, as I mentioned in the opening, you have an article that was published on Forbes.com today, The Seven Lessons on Building Elite Teams for Disruptive Innovation. 
before we talk about the, the the seven, I don't know if we'll get to all seven, but there's a couple I want to ask you about. What what was the inspiration for this particular this particular piece that you did? You know, the inspiration of this piece is it goes back to something uh, we have talked about many times in the past. I truly believe we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And mm-hmm. as you look at building your personal connections, your personal network your mentors, the people you look up to, the people you bounce ideas off of. A few years back, I looked around at my community and went, these are some of the people I respect the most, and I have a lot to learn from them. How about we talk about it and we publish that? So we got together, and I, I sent a message out to them and said, if you would reply with to this question, and then I compiled the answers. And we put together the questions that drive leaders. And then from there, we defined what leadership meant to us, and it's you know, 36 leaders across industries, but when you put it together, it helps you form your basis of what your beliefs are about what you think it is. Carrying that over into one of my experiences, I had the opportunity to be a person at DARPA with an all-access badge, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, one of the most amazing organizations in this country, and I learned more in that three- to four-month period than I did in the rest of my career, I think. So as I started working with the Forbes Coaches Council, I was on an airplane one day and I said, at what point in my life have I learned the most in a short period of time? And this came up. My time at DARPA came up. And that's where the inspiration for these seven lessons came from, because that's what DARPA does is create disruptive innovation. Yeah, I, and I I love this because this is this is clearly something that's a this a sweet topic for both Ron and I to talk about. We've done a number of shows on inner innovation and disruption, and a lot of our Free Rider Friday stuff that we talk about is de- dedicated to industries that are doing this. And man, the first one that you share with us had really resonated with me, and I'm sure it does with Ron as well. And that is number one: demand diversity of thought. So I- I explain what you mean by that, because it's different than what we hear in the in the in the press today about we need diversity, diversity, diversity. But diversity of thought is is different, isn't it? It is incredibly different, and and I think culture leads us down. Diversity is what the color of your skin is, or your upbringing, or your nationality, or your heritage. And I fully don't believe that. It became obvious to me in my last assignment in the military, as well as at DARPA, because the purpose of bringing us to DARPA, they put us in a room, two Air Force people, two Navy people, two of every type of people, and three PhDs from industry. And they locked us in a room, and they challenged us to solve an unsolvable problem in three months. And to begin with, we said, we can't do this. You and I don't speak the same language. We're from different backgrounds. But what we found was, the diversity of our thought. A fighter pilot thinks like a fighter pilot. It doesn't matter what my heritage is because my training is as a fighter pilot. The PhDs thought like their PhD upbringing. And what that caused is we all look at a problem through a different lens from a different angle, which means we see different opportunities to excel. That's what I mean by this diversity. Yeah, and I think that's so important. I mean, we we hear that we need diverse teams, but but you know, hey, there's a there's a lot a lack of diversity in a lot of places that claim to be 
diverse. And I think that, that that's that's causing a lot of lot of problems for them. Anyway, I want to we only have about one minute left before the, the end of the segment. So I want to want to talk to you about actually five and six, which which I've kind of combined together in my mind. You've got them uh, separated out. But explore for me, if you will, this notion of empowering your team and or trusting the team that you've assembled. And what's the diff perhaps the difference between those two? I love the fact that you put those together, and I think that's the most common thing to do. But as a leader, I have to empower you to make decisions. I have to empower you to explore options and do things on your own, but I also have to trust you. I have to trust that you're going to do the best you can with the knowledge you have and the situation you've been given to move our company forward, our effort forward. And that's why empower and trust go together, and you really can't break those apart and have one without the other to be successful. Yeah, and uh, clearly so Im- important. I think that the, the the you know it's funny is there's there's so, that we talk a lot about trust, but yet there are so many companies that have systems that are designed where trust is 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 completely taken out of it. And the, you know the one that always comes to my mind, Ron and I have talked about this on the show, is say your expense system. You know. Yes. Um, yeah, we trust you. Oh, but by the way, like once you if you fill out an expense report, you've got to fill it out in triplicate and still got to be scotch taped to the back of a page and resent in and all of this stuff. The system is designed to 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 not enable trust as opposed to I don't know if you've heard of this guy. His name is Ricardo Semler, who says to his team when he, he gives them an American Express card and says, look, if you need something to do your job better, put it on the American Express card. We don't audit it. We just pay it. And I think that there's a beauty in that. Yeah, to take this one step further, one of the things that I always love to say every time I lead an organization or work with somebody is, as you work up the hierarchy of every organization, if you do not have the power to say yes, you do not have the authority to say no. Think about that. If you can't approve something, it's so easy to say no just because you don't want to work on it. But if you can't approve it, then you also can't disapprove it. Absolutely. Well, great stuff. Can't believe it. We're already against our first break, Ron, as I knew this was going to completely fly by. But we want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website, The Soul of Enterprise, where we will post full show notes to this show with Colonel Chris Strickland, as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and the folks who do our great social media leading results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chris Elroy Strickland, retired from the United States Air Force, former Thunderbird, his second appearance. Chris, thank you so much for 23 years of service to our country, first off. And just on that, on your Forbes article, which I just love, by the way, and, and we will post a full link to it on the show notes, I, the diversity of thought, I just love that. And I've started to use the word variety instead of diversity because... I just think diversity is too loaded of a word these days. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I like that. And what we say at Ashburner when we go in and coach a CEO or a new hire in a company is words mean things. And we have to make sure we know what we mean by them before we use them with our corporation, with our team. And we need to define them so we have a common understanding and a common mental model to move forward. And whether it's diversity or any other word you come up with, you just need to tell the team what you mean and what you expect. Right. That's a great point. Uh, Definitely words and language are very, very powerful. Speaking of words, let me ask you about four that the military has put into an acronym that I hear more and more in the private sector picking it up, especially these days of, you know, uh, just constant disruption and innovation, VUCA. Tell me about VUCA from a military perspective or a fighter pilot's perspective. It's unique, and it. I had the opportunity to obtain a degree from the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and that is one of the main things that our U.S. Army focuses around. So, again, words mean things. So to all our listeners out there, let's make sure we're all on the same page. So it's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. If you write those down, you'll realize almost every situation that you go into meets one of those. And what it really means is when we step out into the world, we can have the best plan in the world, but something is going to change. As we're going back to quotes, I like to go to one that, as a great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, everybody (laughs) has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. (laughs) Right. That's beautiful. So That's beautiful. think about this. As you're going out there, whether it's a military operation, we have to plan for the things that we don't know are coming. We have to plan for the threats. We have to plan the contingencies of what could go wrong, what the trigger is to make us go to our backup plan, and what our initial actions are if that happens. And the reason we do that is because knowing those first three steps gives you time to get your feet back underneath you and go from a reactive mode to a proactive mode. So when we're dealing with VUCA, that's what we're trying to do is always maintain proactivity in all of our actions. 
Right. And that's such an important point because I find a lot of organizations, yes, they make plans, but they don't, but they never experiment with the ambiguity in those plans or the complexity or the surprises, you know, the, the broken arrow, if you will, when the, you know, the enemy does something that completely takes you by surprise. And it, it just seems like they never give much thought to that aspect of planning. And that's what drives success. Planning is important, but it's not everything. Execution is where we determine the elite from the mediocre. And we have to know. So by training, I'm an economist. I'm a numbers guy. And I love game theory. That is where all of my extra time goes in is to reading game theory. The good old things of, well, I know that you know that I know that you know that you're going to do this. Therefore, I'm going to react here. And that's really what we're talking about with Buka is how do we know the moves our competition, our enemy, our competitor is going to make before they even know they make them so that I can know how to proactively act instead of reactively. Right. Good point. And, you know, in another post that you wrote that I really like, improving workplace morale is easy with these two simple words, speaking of words again. Can you kind of unpack that? The What are the two words that increase morale? The two simple words. So I'm going to ask you, now that you've read that article, what do you? What does it mean to you? Because before I slant you with my opinion, I want to know how it translated to your thought and how you're moving forward. Well, certainly one of the words is value. And, and that that uh, a big part of this show is all about the creation of value and what is value. And value is usually a feeling you know, it, it's more than just a number because we're economists too, but, and I'm an accountant, it's even worse. Talk about numerical, um, but values a feeling. So I really like that. But then you also, the other word is communication. And that is so true, Chris. And I guess my question is, I just find an appalling lack of communication in a lot of organizations. Do you find the same thing? I mean, I know it's easy to say that communication, but it, it seems to be really hard, like we have an aversion to, to open and honest communication with our colleagues. I love that. I love that. As you tell me what those two things mean to you, now let me address what they mean to me. And I tell CEOs, I tell C-suites this, I tell leaders this all the time is more often than not, whether somebody's going to stay at your organization or not is not the amount of money you pay them. You have to pay them enough to, so that they think they're compensated for what they do, but more important, they need to know that you value what they do, that they are making a difference to something bigger than themselves. And ultimately that boils down to communication. I need to let everybody that works in my organization know that they are critical to the success of our team. So as new leaders in the military came up, I always told them to communicate two up and one down. Every time you walk out of a meeting, if you think about communicating two up and one down, you will be successful in communication. What does that mean? I want to make sure that I tell my boss things that he can answer to what his boss wants to know. Going the other direction, if I walk out, if every level communicates what they talked about in that meeting, one level below them, it will permeate through the company and move out so that we have transparent communication. And even if you don't like what's going on, if you understand what's going on and how you are value added to that, your morale will go through the roof. Let me ask you one last question. I always ask this because what I heard in the military is 
we're working too hard, we're working too many hours, that's why our morale is low. And this is what drove this article you're talking about. I would ask them the same question every time. Think about your highest professional morale. I delineate between professional and personal because those are two different things that contribute to each other, but they're two separate sides of a coin. Your highest professional morale most likely happened after you worked one of your longest days. You put in the most effort, but it's high because you achieved something that you wanted to achieve. And you communicated how that goes out to the team, and you knew the value that fell back on your effort. If you think about that, high morale is not about the number of hours I put in. It's about knowing the value I add during those hours. Right. No, couldn't have said it better. That's that's absolutely perfect and so true. It's that it's when you're in the flow and, and time just becomes irrelevant. You you could work at 19 hours and, and you'd still be on a high because you're accomplishing something that's greater than yourself. That's true. We need to know the transparency of where the company is going, of what it means to us. And so one of the questions I love to ask, my last organization was 7,000 7, people strong. And I always ask each person in the field the same question of, how are the actions you took today contributing to the defense of this nation, which is the U.S. Air Force is our job. And for every person that could tie their actions into something for our nation, they had a higher morale because they knew they were part of something bigger than themselves. Right, right. Yeah, you, you, you can't pay a man a million dollars, but he'll, he'll give his life for a ribbon, you know, as the, it's an old military saying. And I just that is so true. If you're working for something greater than yourself, you'll give it your all. Um, Chris, your work with um, Afterburner fasc- fascinates me because I know some of it is trying to introduce the debrief process and the lessons learned process into corporate America or organizations. And I'm just wondering it, it, is it successful? Because I have I have a lot of pushback with, you know, implementing after action reviews and at least professional firms. And I'm just wondering how that is going. Is it is it being is it being embraced? I'm going to tell you. You asking that question gives me chills because I'm going to give you an example. This this organization I began working with about a year and a half ago. We put the planning process in and we planned out four missions for them, and three of them were going well, and one of them completely failed about three weeks in. And many people would walk away and go, hey, that didn't work. But the leader sat down with our afterburner team and we debriefed how it failed. What Mm -hmm. the lessons learned were that can improve our actions in the next mission. And he planned a new mission and he nailed it. In 12 weeks, he nailed a goal that everybody thought was unrealistic. And 12 months later, this individual, who happened to be a sales individual, hit 550% of his target. 550%. Think about that. And his goal was not a very small one. Nobody in the company had ever hit that high of a level, and he stood up in front of the CEO of this $100 million company, and the CEO said, how were you able to do that? And he said, through the afterburner debrief process. That's how I nailed it. Beautiful. You know, uh, uh, now that you say that, I think about some of the after action reviews I've held after, say, jobs have gone bad. And that does show the worth of the process, because we know for a fact we're not going to make those mistakes again. But it just seems like it's so hard to get the organization to devote time to the process. And then more importantly, like you say, embed it into the culture. That's a really that's a real challenge. 
it does have to be a culture. I, I coached one uh, young lady, and she came back to me a couple of months later, and she said, hey, I debriefed my CEO, and it didn't go well. And, and I said, well, explain this to me. Uh, what was the situation when you debriefed your CEO? And she goes, oh, we were walking down the hall, and I told him what he could do better. And I said, that's not a debrief. That's a critique. And that's not in private. That was public. So that is why it's most important that you create a culture of debrief before you just critique somebody walking down the hall. Right. Right. Well, and, and I know their value because I, I sat through a process in an ICU ward where they do this at the end of every shift. And it was just amazing because people were in the in the after action review admitting mistakes. And, you know, like fighter pilots, this is life and death stuff. And it just seems like you're if you have no fears about admitting errors and wanting to improve, how can the organization not improve? So I, I just love this, Chris. Unfortunately, it flew by again, and we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, we will post full show notes with our second interview with Colonel Chris Strickland, former U.S. Air Force Thunderbird. And now we want to hear a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Colonel Chris Elroy Strickland. And we want to remind you that you can listen to our show commercial free out on our Patreon site. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 
TSOE. But uh, Chris, as you and Ron were talking, my, my project management wheels are just fl flying, uh, on, going on, on on overdrive here. And, and I, I wanted to ask you about something, uh, especially with regard to communication. And I'm, I was reminded when you were talking about this great quote from George Bernard Shaw, who said, the trouble with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And and I just love your notion of two up, one down to to overcome that. But in one of the the steps, I had the opportunity to participate in a workshop uh, with you on 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 mission planning, and great stuff. A lot of stuff that I learned from project management. But there's one side of it where you, after it's right after the the lessons learned that, that has been where you've evaluated what you've learned, and you're making a go or no go decision. And I wanted to ask you. How have you been involved in times where people have had to say, you know what, even after all of this, after we, all of this planning, we we can't do this. We have to stop. I think there's a lot of companies, especially, that struggle with the courage to say, we, we need to stop here. Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite steps of our process in the Afterburner methodology. So we always go through six steps of mission planning. First of all, we determine the mission objective. Every time I get in the aircraft, I know what the purpose of me taking off is. And I can deliberately determine and definitively determine if I accomplish that or not. Then we look at the threats, the things that will cause us to fail. We look at the resources. What do I need to be successful? And then we dive into lessons learned. I want to go to my peer group. I want to go to other people and go, hey, you've done something similar in the past. Maybe not exactly but what can I learn from you? What do you wish you would have done better? And at that point, with my planning team, I determine if we are a go for the mission or a no-go. And this comes directly from flying in combat with fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft because our commanders come in and go, here's your point of taking off. You're going to go hit this target, and it's a risk level of medium, which has definite uh, parameters within the military. And we sit in that planning session, and we look at everything going on, and if we determine that we are going to be a higher risk than our commanders gave us, we go back to that commander and say, ma'am, we can't do that without risking losing an aircraft. Is the target important enough to up our risk level? And she either says yes or no. And we either plan for it and go, or we realize that the mission was going to be a fail before we set out on the execution of it. Same thing with businesses. We say we want you to fail fast. If this is a year-long project, I want to know that it is going to be a failure and minimize my sunk cost a week into this, not 11 months into it. I want to know $100 in, not $100 million in. And that's what I find in corporate America. Companies are reluctant to admit they're not going to be successful until they're the 11-month 11, 11 point. And why? I don't want to waste money or effort or time. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I, I'm I'm recalling the 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 the, the uh, great story of, of of Chesley Sullenberger, him him landing the, the 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 plane in the Hudson River, which just it gives me chills every time I think about that. But though I, I actually saw him on an interview, I think it was with um, uh, I can't remember her name, but it was, it was six, 60 minutes, and he, the phrase that he kept using, and it stuck in my head for years, was. My job was to successfully crash the aircraft. <laughs> I was just like successfully crash, and 
it sticks in my mind because I think there's so many businesses that need to, whether it's, it's, it's a project that they're just starting or maybe something that's been going on for years that they need to, to, to create a plan around successfully crashing something. And I think that there's a great lesson for us in that and that we really, we really need to begin to embrace that more in business. The, what are we going to say? What are we going to say no to? Right. And, and if I could take you one step further on Sully, if you watch his interviews, you will find out that he had practiced something similar to that crash landing many times in the simulator. Because what he was doing was exercising a contingency. A situation occurred that triggered him to go down a different path, to go from flying that mission to successfully crashing that plane and minimizing the loss of life. But he did it very calmly because he had already flown it in his mind. Yeah, the, the thing that, that sticks out to me about that one, too, and, and I think that there is a relationship here to business today, as we begin to rely more and more on artificial intelligence, and to, to, to me, to think that if, if, a, if a, an artificial intelligence entity was in, was in charge of that aircraft, I don't think it would have been able to come up with the creative solution that he did. It would have tried to, I don't know, get back to LaGuardia or land in Teterboro or something, which would have been a disaster. But... I don't think anyone there would have been any programming artificially intelligent agents come with. Yeah, let me let me land that land this thing in the in the Hudson River. And let me pull on that string a little bit, because one of the things we talk about when we go out into corporate America is if you look around the room of the people you have assembled, are you capitalizing on the experience and expertise of the team you have put there? Because oftentimes we bring in people and we don't empower them to use their experience and expertise. We don't trust them to do what their job is because we're so worried that they're going to crash the airplane instead of trusting that they're going to react to whatever happens and maximize the advantage while minimizing any loss. Yeah, no, great, great stuff. And uh, we, we, we need to be, be careful of that. And uh, again, turning, turning back to the article, and I've just got a couple of m- more minutes left with you here, uh, where, where you talk about all these great leadership quotes and what, it, what is leadership. And you, you wind, the, wind up the article by saying, um, you know, what, what else do you have to, to offer on this? You know, what insight can you add to this list? And I want to share this one with you and get your reaction to it. It's my personal favorite it's not. It, I guess it's a definition of leadership, um, and it uh, it comes from a guy by the name of Peter Block, who's a big um, consulting person, and, and I'm a huge fan of. He's been a guest on the show, and he said that leadership is about confronting people with their freedom. That's a deep one, isn't it? Yeah. Think about <laughs> think about that because if you open them up to truly achieve what they are capable of doing, there's a, there's a part of you that's scared about that because you lose the excuse of my boss wouldn't let me do it. You have to right. own what you're doing. And it goes back to the Forbes article we talked about earlier. The DARPA director told me one day, if you're not willing to swing for the fence, don't walk up to my plate. Because she said that the same nerve that it takes to make incredible advances is the same nerve it takes to endure an incredible loss. And if you're not willing to endure one, you're not going to achieve the other. Because ultimately, as leaders, our job is to grow a newer, better leader to replace us down the road. We expect them to be better than we are, and we ultimately will not see the fruits of our labor and our effort 
until about three to five years after stepping out of that role and seeing how our replacement does. Yeah, right. First rule: tra- train your replacement, right, so that you, you you have some you well you have someplace else to go, but also so in case there's there's some kind of a failure, they they can pick up the pieces. You because you don't want to leave people with with completely leaderless. If you build an organization that's dependent on you and you to be present there to work, you have failed as a leader. So who, who perhaps are some of your favorites when you, when you think about leadership from a, maybe a military history standpoint, Chris, because I know you've done a lot of, of, of reading on that, that subject as well. When you look back on the, the, the great military leaders who were able to train that second generation, we, we hear, or maybe perhaps they, they were the second generation, but we hear you know people like MacArthur or, or Patton. Um, who of them were able to, to really get to that point where they could pass along the torch to somebody else and enable them to be a better leader? You know, I'll tell you, as I'm standing here in my office, I look to my bookshelf as soon as you say that, and the first two books I see are Lincoln on Leadership and George Washington's Leadership Lessons. Those are two of the books that I love the most because I think those individuals had so many lessons in their life that we can all learn from and grow as leaders even today. And then I go beside that one more and I see the art of war because I personally, as a fighter pilot, I think the art of war applies in almost everything that we do in our lives and our leadership. But if you have to ask me my top three, those are the top first three that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, amazing that that was written, what, close to 2000 years ago, the art of war. Is that right? That's it. It it has been translated so many times and, and I go one more book over and I see the leadership secrets of Jesus so we can go all the way back and, and realize that everybody we can learn leadership from. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, great, great stuff. Well, I can't believe it. We're, we're against our last break here. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise. Dot com, uh, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, we want to remind you that you can uh, to to listen to our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash U.S forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with retired Colonel Chris Elroy Strickland, his call sign Elroy, because he looked like Elroy from the Jetsons, I think, if I remember (laughs) right. Uh, Chris, this has just flown by. This is so great to have you on again. Um, You wrote a a very interesting post, and we will link to it, uh, 36 Questions Which Lead Leaders. And it made me think of the Richard Feynman quote, you know, the physicist. And he said this. He said, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered rather than answers that can't be questioned. And you start this post by saying leadership is not about having the right answers. It's the ability to ask the correct questions. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And that is one of the things I truly believe as a leader The most effective leaders are not the ones that come across as I want to tell you how much I know. They're the ones that are more than willing to sit at the head of the table and go, what do you think about this? I don't understand what you mean by this. Let's talk through it. And that's how you develop elite teams is by that confidence in your leadership ability that you do not know everything. Right. And that's a that's a fine trade off, isn't it, between because you're you're probably an expert in your area and yet you kind of have to sit there and play ignorant or, or at least not not try and show off your expertise. That's right, because if you go back to what we just talked about, remember, the ultimate purpose of leadership is to build your replacement, is to build a better you to take over the organization and lead them to higher levels of success. And the only way you can do that is by getting a fresh set of eyes on every question, by getting a fresh thought into what the solutions are, and to being open to a different solution than you came up with as a leader. Right. And then in the companion post with this 36 questions, which lead leaders, uh, you wrote 36 leadership experts reveal what, what truly exceptional leadership is all about. And you say you, have an, you, you had an aha moment and it, it, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I love that. And who said it? Uh, it goes back to uh, Jim Ron that said that originally in a publication. But I truly believe that. And if you say it to people, it's one of those things that resonates, whether it's your professional life or your personal life. You can think about the people you hang out with, and you will take on their mannerisms. You will talk about things at the same level all the time. If you don't change up those people, you won't dive deeper or see it from a different aspect. So that's the reason I love thinking about it. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right, right. Now, that's really important. It does make you think about how important it is to be with people who are, you know, have an abundance mentality and aren't negative and and want the best rather than people who are you have a lot of negative energy, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, that's a, I just found that to be a really great thought. That was a really good article. We will definitely uh, link to both of those uh, on your LinkedIn page. And then another one that really struck me um, that I read this morning was your post from September 14th, 2018, A Celebration of Survival. And I, I, I can't give this enough justice in words, so I'll let you explain it. Explain to us what happened on September 14th. So 15 years before that day, I ejected from my Thunderbird F-16 in an unsurvivable ejection. So even the ejection seat company said that their seat was not capable of keeping me alive that day. And if I tell you what that 25.25 second long flight was from takeoff to impact, then it will take me three and a half hours to tell you everything I thought about. And as we went forward with my military career, with my family life, obviously my family bears the scar of that, but we never talked about it. For 13 years, we never talked about it. And as it was coming up on retirement, uh, I sat down with Joel Neep, another fighter pilot who had endured unsurvivable cancer and survived, and we decided to talk about, deal with, embrace the things that we had been through. We wanted to talk about our family experiencing a howling what if and a recurrent fear of almost. Think about that. Because mm. we felt like every day that we lived was a gift. And it was the most emotional time of my life, not the experience itself, but actually dealing with it and writing it down was traumatic in itself. I had to talk to my wife about it for the first time. I had to talk to others about it for the first time. And this article came from the 15-year anniversary of that moment whenever I said, I'm going to deal with this, and I'm going to be open with the lessons that Joel and I learned with the survivor's obligation we feel to earn every single day we live. Survivor's obligation. I, I love that phrase. That's beautiful. Yeah, it, it was, as you can tell, as you can hear in my voice, it's still emotional, uh, on how we went through this process together. And we feel like that so many others can benefit from us being open about what our families experienced, about what we experienced, about the joy of living every day that we think that we almost didn't live. So as we go through this, uh, the book's going to publish next fall. I encourage you all to follow us as we start building up to the book release. But it is truly an experience because 70% of people have experienced a traumatic something in their life. Everybody has some type of trauma, and you don't just have to jump out of a multi-million dollar aircraft or experience cancer to need to grow from that, to need to experience the tomorrow that you have the opportunity to live. So the way we like to say it is yesterday is your history, tomorrow is your future, but today is your life. You need to live it and earn it every single day. And struggle is a big part of that because struggle makes us stronger and more vibrant. It does. It does. And believe me, we all have struggles in our life. But my family going through the Air Force calling my wife and saying, your husband has crashed and we don't think he survived. That is tough. Tough on a family, tough on kids. You, are, you have cancer, and we don't think you'll live another five months. You think about the emotional toll that takes on everybody. And we see so many people that go, that was hard, 
I'm going to use it as an excuse. Don't do that. We learn things. We learn how to live differently through the experiences that our family, that we individually go through. And we need to have that survivor's obligation to be more tomorrow than we were today, to be a better person tomorrow, and to earn the right to live another day. Right. Wow, that that's powerful stuff. I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. That I, I can't wait for the book to come out. When it does, we will definitely have you back on. So, uh, I I can't wait to see what what uh, what that's all what that's going to be like to read that book. It's going to be really powerful. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. And it's it's just like the articles we talked about. If you see the theme in my writing, it's not definitive. It's always open ended because I know there's so much more I have out there to learn. There's so much more we can learn from each other, but we need to seize every day and, and the initiative and the ownership of making our future deliberately because we have to be proactive in everything we do and realize what each individual life can truly become. Right. Chris, you know, we talked about, you know, I talked to you about planning. I talked to you about VUCA and, and obviously the debrief and the lessons learned. What other strategies and principles and practices do you, that that you've brought from the military that apply to the business world? So you're going to see the theme whenever you look at my writings or our talkings. I realize today we've talked about the military, we've talked about business, we've talked about life and death, but ultimately it all ties together in being hungry to be more, being hungry to learn more, and being eager to bring all of us together to be a better group as what we can become. So think about that, because I truly believe, even though you have personal and professional goals and satisfaction, they tie together. And the way you run your personal life will translate into your professional, and the way you act in your professional life will translate to your personal. So what I, the number one principle I learned from the military and from spending years a year at a time away from my family, is make the most of every moment. Be emotionally in the situation with which you are talking, the person you're talking to, and the action you are taking. Right. You, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've been uh, incorporating into my presentations around after-action reviews since our first interview is your, I think you had a statistic there, there have been some 325 plus Thunderbirds and, you know, you point out there's 50% turnover in those teams every two years. And then after four months, they can go out and do an air show and you tell people that, and some of these teams have been together for decades and they don't, they don't work as good as that. And I just think that's a really powerful message. It is. And if you look at any of the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels, any of those elite teams, they will tell you that it's due to deliberate training and developing lessons learned because when I walk in, I need to understand the lessons of the 50 years of Thunderbirds that came before me so that I can be better than they were and translate to my replacement being better than me. Same as with our professional life. My ultimate goal is to give my children a higher launching platform so they can have a better life than we did. Right. You know, Ed tells the story of doing uh, after action reviews with his kids over dinner at night. Do you do you do the same with yours? Do you have after action reviews so on their day we'll, at school? We'll have to do a show. I have a full keynote presentation on a flawlessly executed vacation, 
which my wife and kids and I went to Disneyland, and we briefed up the plan. We planned it all out of what order we were going to ride each thing. We briefed it up. We went out and executed, and then we're riding back on the uh, on the tram, and my kids look over and go, okay, Dad, let's debrief how we can vacation harder next time. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> wow. Well, Chris, this has been such an honor to have you back on The Soul of Enterprise, and we definitely want to stay in touch and see how the book is progressing and have you back when that comes out. So congratulations on getting on, on getting that published. That's just awesome. And thank you so much for coming back on the soul of enterprise. We thoroughly enjoy talking with you. Thank you, sir. As always, it's been an honor to spend some time with you and to devote this hour to thinking about how we improve tomorrow better than we did today. Thank you so much. Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, it's free writer Friday. Right on. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will link to all of the articles uh, that we talked about with Chris today and have full show notes. Also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.